Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Banter Podcast for episode 19. This is your host, Ben Cohen. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Luciano. Mike, how are you today, my friend? Uh, ben, I'm on edge. Uh, just before we started recording this, it's Friday. Got a, several push notifications about Ruth Bader Ginsburg announcing that she's been getting chemotherapy for liver cancer since May, I think. And this is just obviously the latest in a series of health scares for her. And I got to be honest, her next health scare is more likely to kill me than her. Uh, this woman, <laughs> she she should just live at the hospital, put her in an iron lung, even just some bubble wrap, whatever needs to be done, do it. And if she goes before January, before the balance of power can be changed in Washington, hopefully, her family is just going to have to not say anything about it. You know, just just keep it under wraps. Just tell the chief justice she can't make the Zoom call for oral arguments because she's sick or she's just tell them she's on a bender. You know, well, Mr. Chief Justice, our mom's lost a lot of money playing the ponies recently, and this is how she's coping. Uh, she's really in no state to hear oral arguments, but uh, we'll give her the blow by blow and uh, She'll have an opinion to contribute. Have a nice day. No, I, I, I agree completely. I mean, I, I, I say it's kind of like Joe Biden, right? Like even if Joe Biden dies before uh, November um, or, or just after November, I don't think it really matters. Just wheel the guy out. You know, let's just we'll keep up this rod that he's he's um, uh, he's alive and everything is well. Uh, you know, I think we just I mean, create a, you know, a, a Ginsburg. um uh, a robot, you know. AI has made some really wonderful developments. Robots. That's my answer to this problem. R R B G robot Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm so I'm sorry you 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 know this put you in such a state, Mike. I have to say, you know, um, it, it's not it's not great news, but uh, you know, I think there are you know look there's some there's some um, we can, we can quickly discuss the uh the polls because we actually had a discussion about this before the podcast and we've actually debated as to whether to even talk about the polls because they're not really changing that much and they're looking so positive for biden but um what's your issue uh, you explain to our to our listeners what your issue is with um discussing the polls i don't have an issue with discussing the polls my thing and i've said this I think since episode one, it's very early, you know, and I said this back in March or whenever we started, it's July. It's still early. It's, it's fine to keep an eye on them. I think Trump, Trump's handling of this has been so bad. Uh, Americans are not better off now than they were four years ago. And just based on that alone, you could probably draw the conclusion that Trump is not doing very well, but it goes back to a point I made a couple of episodes ago. Michael Dukakis was leading by something like 17 points in late July of 1988, and he ended up losing. And that was a national poll, of course, and you know we don't really look at national polls because we don't elect the president nationally. But back in 2016, there were also polls that showed Hillary Clinton competitive in places like Georgia and Utah, and you know even relatively close in Texas. And we all know how that turned out. So I'm a little leery of polls. It's not something I, I generally pay attention to until the first debate or so. Yeah. And I, th I, okay, no, I see your point. I mean, I think there was an interesting piece in the New York Times today, in fact, that the, uh, the Joe Biden's double digit lead in national polls. So the New York Times article by Nate Conn, um asked the question, you know, what would happen if there was the same sort of 2016 polling debacle? Uh, you know, what if the same thing happened now? So if you look at the polls, right, so Biden, um, if polls were off, here's the New York Times says, if the polls were off by as much as they were in 2016, Joe Biden would still lead most battleground states, right? So the Electoral College, the total based on the current polls, right, right now, Biden wins 390. Okay, and if they've calculated that if the polls were as off as they were in 2016, he would have 310. And that's 40 points. That's that's 40 um, electoral college votes over the 270 limit. 
So that's a huge, that's still a whopping victory for, for Biden. I think that's notable, you know, because he's up in Arizona, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, by significant margins. The lowest is in, is in North Carolina and in Arizona, but he's still, Biden is still ahead. So I think that's significant to, that, that right now, Biden's lead is, it appears to be, you know, it's solidifying. It's not going anywhere, right? It, and that's news in of itself that that Biden is maintaining such a steady lead and and growing lead. Uh, and then p- Trump's poll numbers, particularly as it pertains to the coronavirus, are just plummeting, right? And the coronavirus is not getting any better. It's getting worse, and it's and it's set to get a lot worse because obviously President Moron um, doesn't understand how to lead a country country through a pandemic. So, you know, I think this is this stuff is still relevant. I do agree that the debates are going to be, you know, they might be somewhat important. But the thing is, as long as Biden shows up and he's relatively coherent, I I, I can't see how uh, they're going to change much. You know, there was a big hoopla made over Biden collapsing. You know, everyone said, oh, Bernie's going to eat him alive. And it's a one on one debate with Bernie Sanders and. You know, it was a good debate. I thought that Bernie Sanders probably did a bit better than Biden, but Biden just didn't, he didn't screw anything up and he was fine. Uh, I thought he he did live, had a good performance against Biden. It was fine. So, and then people I th- who think that Biden's going to kind of, he's going to f- suddenly fall apart when on the stage with a guy who thinks you should inject bleach, you know, to treat the coronavirus. I think people are going to be surprised at how, normal he looks compared to Trump and how absolutely fine he is. So I don't think you're going to see much of a change. I have a, I struggle to see what, what can change, what, what, what will make a difference? What can Trump do? And I still, I'm not seeing it right now. Like, did you see that Trump changed his campaign manager? I did see that. I saw he fired Brad, uh, he didn't fire Brad Parscale. He demoted him. Apparently Trump, he was upset about the, the meager 6,200 people who attended his rally in Tulsa. Um, I, I mean, this, this shows that I think he's, you know, he's in, he's in real panic mode at the moment, Uh, you know, and he's doing what he did in 2016, which is continually chuck out campaign managers and bring in new ones uh, to try and they, I love the way that the political press reports and it steady the ship you know, you know, um, as if you can study anything that Trump is part of, you know, uh, bring discipline to Trump's campaign, which I think is almost impossible when you're dealing with Donald Trump. I mean, he he won't listen to anybody. So I think it doesn't really matter who he brings in. You know, they, they'll ask him to do, you know, the only way that Trump gets to win here is if he completely reverses course on the coronavirus, uh, stops getting in Twitter battles with people. And it, it doesn't watch Fox News for you know 24 hours a day or 23 hours a day, whatever he, whatever he does, uh, in the early mornings of uh, the early hours of the day. So I think that um, tr- none, none of this stuff is going to work. I think whoever runs Trump's campaign, I keep waiting for Steve Bannon to come back in. Like I think that 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 is inevitably going to happen. Like put it this way, t- in two months' time, I think Steve Bannon will be back in contention. He'll be back. Uh, back in Trump's campaign and and uh, leading the charge against Joe Biden, but I, which I just think is not going to make any difference because there are just too many external factors that Trump cannot control. Right? There is, you know, he's the the economy is in real trouble. The coronavirus is getting worse, and there's nothing really he can do about it. So he's kind of stuck. Yeah, and I thought that there was an interesting uh, quote today by. Um, Anthony Scaramucci. Did you read that piece by uh, in the Guardian? Actually, the Guardian spoke to Anthony Scaramucci, and and the Mooch had a very interesting uh, thing to say about about Trump. Uh, and he says, um, "I always tell people, 120 days is like 500 years in Trump world, but he's on a trajectory of a downward slope. And he's doing something because I know the son of a bitch well. He's doing something that I find fascinating. He's subconsciously self-detonating." He's doing things every single day that is literally forcibly unraveling his political career. And that is the hidden secret, the underbelly of a narcissist. They have a full, very full-blown self-destructive streak in their personalities. He's got his hands on the self-detonator now. Fascinating, right? This is coming from The Mooch. The Mooch. Yeah, look, Trump, 
he doesn't have a campaign manager. He doesn't have a chief of staff. He doesn't have a communications director. He has firefighters. That's all these people basically do. You can't have any kind of real strategy when Trump is just so unhinged and pivoting and pivoting and piv- he's he's got no attention span. He's got no real plan. And at the end of the day, all these firefighters around him end up getting burned and they get they get fired. They get tossed out of the administration. And, and to, to your point, you know, yeah, I, I don't see how he can turn it around. On the other hand, they could cheat. You know, they could close polling locations under the, the guise of, you know, uh, I don't know what. I, like, I don't there could be a terrorist attack. I mean, we got we got hit with a global pandemic this year for the first time in 102 years. And I know we only have about 100 days until the election, but I am not willing to say there's no way he can turn this around uh, because I have seen just continued to be surprised and taken aback by by what's going on in the country, in the world. And uh, last night was was another example. We there was a report uh, from Oregon Public Radio, I believe they initially re- reported this, but I have the Washington Post article pulled up right here. So it looks like we have roving gangs of camouflaged, some people are calling them federal agents. Uh, just before we started recording, I saw people on Twitter suggesting that they were mercenaries, members of a private security firm. Who knows what they are? We need more reporting on this, and, and hopefully we get some answers, like yesterday. But I'll just read the beginning of this, this Washington Post article from July 17th. When several men in green military fatigues and generic police patches sprang out of an unmarked gray minivan in front of Mark Pettibone in the early hours of Wednesday morning, his first instinct was to run. He didn't know whether the men were police or far-right extremists who frequently donned military-like outfits and harassed left-leaning protesters. The 29-year-old resident said he made it about half a block before he realized there would be no escape. Then he sank to his knees, hands in the air, said he was terrified. It seemed like it was out of a horror slash sci-fi, like a Philip K. Dick novel. It was like I was being preyed upon. He was detained and searched. One man asked him if he had any weapons. He did not. They drove him to the federal courthouse and placed him in a holding cell. Two officers eventually returned to read his Miranda rights and asked if he would waive those rights to answer a few questions. He did not. Very smart on his part. So this has been happening in Portland, and and there's been videos of this circulated, and it just shows just like what this says. Armed guys wearing camouflage and riot gear with just these generic police badges, not ATF, not FBI, not Homeland Security. They're not identifying who, who they're with. They're not identifying who they are. And they're just putting people into unmarked, minivans and I guess driving them to the courthouse in, in, in this situation or driving them them somewhere. This is shocking. And this is we just had uh, Department of it's Homeland terrifying. Security. Yes, it's terrifying. We just had DHS Secretary uh, Chad Wolf. He was in Portland and he was saying, you know, he's not going to you know, the federal government's not going to let uh, Portland turn into the, a, a riot zone or whatever he said. This isn't really the purview of the federal government. The mayor of Portland does not did not invite them in. The governor did not invite them in. This is nuts. It's crazy. I mean, Portland, Oregon is is a kind of a hotbed of white nationalism. I, I actually lived in Oregon for a year, um, one of the whitest places I've ever been to, and it really doesn't surprise me. I mean, outside of the outside of the cities, uh, it's re- you know you're you're really in Republican stronghold, like white, super 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 wasp territory. Uh, and kind of scary was territory. I think isn't it where the Proud Boys are from? That that um, that guy Gavin Newsom, not Gavin Newsom, Gavin McInnes rather. Gavin McInnes, I, the former Voice guy. Who uh, I don't I know. He, I don't know if that's Proud Boys territory. I do know it's Bundy territory. Remember, not Cliff and Bundy in Nevada, but the there was another merry band of Bundy pranksters who took over like a some federal building in Oregon and. There was a shootout up there. 
uh, in which one of them died. Um, they had a shootout with the FBI, but yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me that this kind of thing is happening in Oregon. You know, um, if you know much about what happens in that state and how virulent white supremacy um, beliefs are in in that part of the country, it's, it's strange. I mean, you wouldn't. Portland's a really, really liberal city, um, but so it's incredibly troubling that this is happening too. But you know, not necessarily that surprising. I mean, this is, I guess, in the era of Donald Trump. You can't expect now for any kind of sane national response to this kind of thing. You know, like imagine if this had happened under Obama or imagine if this had happened under Bill Clinton. You know, there would have been real consequences for this and an immediate sort of uh, 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 investigation and, and, you know, very serious efforts to figure out what was going on here. But, you know, can you, you want to rely on the Trump administration to do something about this? No. Oh, you were. That was a rhetorical question. I'm sorry for interrupting. Yeah, yeah, not gonna happen. It's it's not gonna happen. I gotta take a a pot shot here at Glenn Greenwald, and also Matt Taibbi. I I used to have a lot of respect for these guys since Trump became president. And here's how naive I, I am. I started reading Greenwald like back during the Bush years, and he wrote a lot of good stuff, you know, talking about the surveillance state and our interventionist foreign policy. Same thing with Taibbi. And Greenwald kept it up during the Obama years, and a lot of liberals suddenly turned on him. They got pissed because he would criticize Obama. I didn't agree with everything he said. I did agree with a lot of it, but I understood what he was doing. You know, like he seemed to be the type of person who took the attitude that he's going to keep taking shots at the king. Like whoever is responsible, whoever's up at the top, that's who's going to get flack from him. And he's not going to hold any punches back. I thought this pattern would continue when Trump became president. And I have been wrong. He's not a Trump supporter, but he reserves most of his fire for Democrats and the media, as opposed to, you know, the people who actually control the reins, Donald Trump. And yes, he has criticized him. He criticized him for the, he, he mentioned the Portland thing. Yeah. He had a couple of tweets about that. Uh, just like he had one tweet about, I think he had one tweet about the Lafayette square park, uh, clearing. Yeah. I don't Greenwald Black Lives Matter was was a that was a totally pathetic, pathetic sort of um, uh, ally. He's a pathetic ally of Black Lives Matter. He he uses the black again like everything he does. Greenwald used the Black Lives Matter to bash Democrats. That was the only way he thing he talked about when when discussing the Black Lives Matter issue was uh, was to use it to bash Democrats, of course. And so so he he mentioned. You know, the Lafayette clearing and he tweeted, it was like one tweet. I don't think he, I don't think he personally wrote an article about it. But if if you just look at at the mentions in his condemnatory tweet about that incident or this Portland thing, you'll find that the replies are loaded with followers of his who are supporting the abduction of American citizens in Portland off the street and being thrown into vans. Or like in the case of the Lafayette Square tweet, like he basically got ratioed by his own followers for saying, yeah, the attorney general shouldn't clear a square of peaceful protesters just because the president wants to go take a photo op at the church. And all these people like they're like, Glenn, I usually agree with you on this, but not here. And these are his followers now. He he and Taibbi as well, they have like carved out this niche for themselves where basically they are the liberal versions of, you know, Steve Schmidt and William Crystal, who can be seen on MSNBC as the conservative voices against the current Republican Party. That is now, I think, the the role that Greenwald and Tybee have, but they're they're the the liberals and they're the ones wailing away at Democrats. And look, you know, as a as a Bernie supporter, I have no love lost for the Democratic National Committee. I think we need a total house cleaning there. I think we need a total house cleaning in the congressional leadership. I think a lot of changes need to be made in this party, and some of these dinosaurs need to be retired. I think Joe Biden should never have even gotten near 
the nomination. But the fact of the matter is we have to get this maniac out of the White House. That is priority number one. Absolute priority number one. Criticizing Democrats along the way, hey, I have no problem with that. But when you're deliberately cultivating this audience using a shtick where you think the biggest problem in America is Democrats who thought that Trump had directly colluded with Russia to win the 2016 election, if you think that's the biggest threat facing America right now, you have lost the fucking plot. Yeah, they have. I mean, and that's the thing, right? I mean, we're in a climate now, right, where, and this has been going on for, for decades now, where the right wing is now so insane that it almost, you can't even really talk about the left until you deal with the right, because the right is so insane that you have to kind of do anything to keep these maniacs out of power. We, we've literally just watched for the past four years what happens when Republicans control everything, right? And they've controlled everything. They've controlled, you know, they for two years, they controlled both houses in Congress, then they controlled the presidency. And you've got Trump, who is a maniac, and he's been covered for by the Republicans. The Republican Party is now the party of Donald Trump, and that, that's just a fact. And anybody who's been paying attention to politics could see this coming, right? Could see what was happening on the right and how danger, how incredibly dangerous they were. So yeah, like there are problems. There are clearly problems with the left, right? And you know that's a whole debate unto itself. And I think that so it's definitely a worthwhile debate, right? It's definitely kind of, you know, the centrists and and the the, the kind of progressives should hash it out. You know, hopefully they can hash it out in in a kind of reasonable, civil manner. But there's a common enemy, right? The com- common enemy is so incredibly dangerous that any to- any sort of distraction is is kind of. It, it, to me, it's reckless. Like what Tybee and Greenwald are engaged in is incredibly reckless behavior. It's actually deeply, deeply dangerous to focus all of their attention on, you know, taking down centuries Democrats, right? Which is, you know, look, fine, criticize them. I get it. I, I understand. But, it's, but if you just ignore what's happening on the right wing, if you ignore what's happening in the Republican Party, which they do, I mean, it's incredible. It's as if the Trump and the Republican Party don't exist. You know, if you look at Glenn Greenwald's Twitter feed, it's like, or like like David Sirota, like these guys just don't acknowledge what's happening on the right and what, how, yeah, sure, Biden's, you know, he's not as progressive as I would like. Um, and I would prefer, you know, a, a Bernie Sanders, at least from a policy perspective, I'd, I'd much prefer his policies. But really, okay, you're going to talk, you're going to spend all day talking about that while while Trump is refusing to uh, publish data from the city. What, what was the latest thing he did with the hospitals? Hospitals now have to report directly. They have to report data directly to the White House now, and it won't go to the CDC, coronavirus uh, statistics, right? That he's gutted every single branch of government um, and filled it with kind of complete, like, bottom feeders and, no, and like, corrupt, basically gangsters, uh, who, who he's brought, who he's you know knew in his new real estate days, he's turned America into a laughing stock and killed you know 140,000 people through his incompetence, right? This is a fucking emergency. You know, it's like um, I think Sam Harris talked about on his podcast. Sam Harris likened it to uh, being on an airplane and then all of a sudden uh, the pilot comes in, comes in and starts shouting, starts talking about like making airplanes great again. Uh, and claiming that there's nothing, you know, when one of the engines is broken, saying that there's nothing wrong with the engine, that it's fine, and that people who are saying there's something wrong with the engine um, hate, you know, hate aeroplanes. Um, you know, we're flying a plane, and it's clearly a huge problem. Yeah, it's it's a big problem. It's, like you said, a problem to the tune of 140,000 dead. It's a big problem to the tune of us hitting... 70,000 COVID cases in a single day. That was July 16th. And depending on the death number, one death number I saw for yesterday was like 900 something. I, I don't know. It varies depending on which source you're looking at. So deaths have been creeping back up and they're a lagging indicator. And so the deaths weren't increasing, even though the cases were but now we're starting to see, you know, people who are contracting it, you know, three weeks ago or whatever, 
they are now expiring. And so there is just every reason to believe that as the cases continue to go up, so will the death rate. And this was entirely avoidable. Trump is in large part responsible for so much of this. He didn't bring COVID-19 here, but he could have done a hell of a lot more to stop the spread, starting with wearing a mask in public and setting that precedent. I have seen and read several interviews with people not wearing masks, and someone always inevitably says, Trump doesn't wear one, so I'm not going to wear one. Who knows just how the simple act of wearing a mask, at least occasionally if you're Donald Trump, who knows how much good that could have done in setting a good example and helping drive cases down and helping us get us to a place where, like, New Zealand is, or South Korea, or or any Germany, or at most countries in the European Union, any other country, pretty much, except for for Brazil. That that's small act, but no, he doesn't put the mask on. He says we have to reopen schools in the fall, which which we do where it's safe to do so. But you can't open schools where cases are surging, and he threatens that he's going to pull federal funding from places that don't have actual in-person classes. All of his lemmings in the Republican Party follow suit. Well, not all. A lot of them have. What's the political calculation here? So so my this is what I've been thinking, right? And I and tell me whether you think this is correct or not. But I think that he's urging schools to open knowing that they won't and they can't, right? Uh, and that what will happen is that he will, because people will disobey him and don't pay attention to anything he says, he can then use it, and, and then you know, then the numbers will go down. If the numbers go down, he'll he'll basically say, "See, I told you we didn't have to do anything, right? So I was right all along." And the Democrats have forced everyone to to not have their kids in school, and they're the reason why the economy is sinking. Do you, do you think that that's his his calculation? That's what I'm guessing. I'm guessing that he knows that he. That, that no one's going to pay attention to him, and that the governors will make their own decisions. Or is he that dumb? I don't know. He can't be I, that stupid. I don't know about that. I mean, I don't think there's much calculation going on. I think in his head, he just wants to get back to normal, quote unquote. Yeah, just ignore the the coronavirus. Yeah, it's not happening. Yeah, it's almost like he is trying to condition Americans to just accept it as the new reality. And, but I, people, he must know that people do listen to him. So Brian Kemp, governor of Georgia, you know, Ron DeSantis, two of his, two of his good governor buddies. Uh, well, they're actually very bad governors, but Brian Kemp in Georgia, he is suing the city of Atlanta because they instituted a citywide mask mandate. And this maniac is seeking a court remedy to get rid of the mask mandate. And he's saying that, yeah, I think people should wear masks. They just shouldn't be mandated to do it. Like, what kind of maniac are you? What is going on? And then Ron DeSantis in Florida, is it yesterday? He, he blamed the media for the rise in cases. He was saying the media got complacent and wasn't asking questions or whatever it was that he said. This is the same guy that was standing in front of the media back in May, poking a finger in their eye saying, you all waxed poetic about how Florida is going to become the new New York. And it hasn't happened. Well, guess what, buddy? You're the new New York and it is on you. Insane. Just totally, totally, totally insane. Yeah, and it's it's set to get it's set to get worse and worse and worse. I mean, I I think it'll be up to two hundred thousand deaths. I think at least by November, right? We're on one hundred and forty. How many people a day is it now? It's over a thousand people a day now. The deaths. I mean, we were at I think nine hundred or so yesterday, but we'll we'll get there. I, I, you know, our our cases are just going up and up and up. And you know what? It wasn't that long ago when, you know, we were uh, when we had 40,000 cases a day or maybe it was 30. Fauci said we could be seeing 100,000 cases a day. And Laura fucking Ingram called Fauci Dr. Doom, dismissed him as a member of the Biden team and all this stuff. We're now at 70,000. All right, we're getting there. And 100,000 cases a day looks like a very real possibility. You know, we're who knows? We're probably already 
you know, the real new case number is probably 100,000 cases a day, but just people aren't getting tested enough or they're not going to get tests. Or like you mentioned, the, the, the reporting to the CDC, um, you know, hospitals need to report directly to Washington now instead of the CDC down in Atlanta. And this, it's just, this was just totally avoidable, but we are, we just are too dumb we're we're too dumb and arrogant and ignorant as a nation to get through this. Maybe if we had a different president, things would be different, but this is just where we're at now. And it's really, it's a shame. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, you know, because, I mean, if you think about what would have happened under Obama, Obama would have done a good job, but he would have basically also created, this. this thing would have happened, you know, instigators like Trump would have, popped up and said that wearing a mask is, you know, is anti-American and you know, this is about our freedom and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you could, there would have been a cultural war anyway. And, you know, it may have been that Obama would have had Obama been president. He would have been, you know, um, yeah. So, how, you know, if Obama had handled it, I like to think if you look at where the polls are now and how deeply unpopular Trump is, particularly in regards to the coronavirus pandemic, you know, and that was, you know, it's very, if you look at the, I mean, it's got like a 60% disapproval of the way he's handling the coronavirus pandemic, more than six, I think it's like 63% according to one poll I read today, um, disapprove of the way he's handling the coronavirus pandemic. That's terrible. So I like to think that had Obama been president, he would have got high marks for handling it in an appropriate way. Um, and he would have been he would have had the kind of foresight to ignore the seething masses of uh, angry white people um, claiming that, uh, you know, wearing a mask violates their First Amendment rights or whatever it is they're claiming violates their their right, their human rights. Um, I like to think that Obama would have been, had you know would have risen above that and um seen it out i think he would have done i think that would have you know there would have been a much better outcome he would have gone high marks for the way he handled this um but yeah it's it's heartbreaking to see how badly trump has done and the fact that people are still supporting him you know it, it, there, there is a, there's still just a rock solid base of of uh trump supporters who w- will stay with him you know, regardless of what he does, of just, and at this point, what what else can you say? You just, uh, there's no other word to describe them other than stupid. They, they, you have to be stupid now to support Donald Trump or think he's doing a good job. There, there are no, I, I can't. Can you? Is there another word? You know, are there any other? Well, first of all, forget Obama. Just any other president we've had, George W. Bush didn't know anything but i think in a situation like this he would know enough to listen to fauci who was there <laughs> if this had if this had happened under his watch i like i i just any any other president any other president reagan clinton obama ford any other president would have handled this way better than this fucking maniac you know Yes, like it starts with his own it starts with his own vanity and not wearing the mask. I think maybe that's where it starts. This aversion to the mask, like I mentioned, you know, setting a bad example for the rest of the country. And then, you know, getting the economy going again. You know, he thinks that like if we swing all the doors open to every establishment in America, things will return return to normal. They're not going to return to normal. First of all, I don't know about you, but I'm not going into an indoor restaurant anytime soon. I don't care if it is open. I don't care if it is at half capacity. I'm not doing that. I'll go outdoor. I'll do takeout. I'm not going inside there. I'm not going inside a store that I don't necessarily need to go into. I've, I've been to the supermarket. That, that's the only indoor establishment I've been to. Um, so it changes people's behavior. You're not going to, you could reopen the country. In its entirety tomorrow, swing open every door. Consumers aren't going to come roaring back. People are going to stay the fuck home. And speaking of the economy, we we have a nightmare coming up. I mean, this is already a nightmare, but we have like maybe a night terror coming up. July 31st is when the $600 extra a week 
uh, expires for people who are getting unemployment. Okay. And there's something like, I think it's like 32 million people who are collecting unemployment. If those benefits aren't extended, watch out. I mean, we already saw in the month of June that 32% of homeowners and renters, they just weren't able to pay their payments in full. So we already have that going, like a third. That's a third. That's a fuck ton of people. And if you add on to this, taking away the extra 600 bucks a week, it's just going to be a total catastrophe. And I know the, the House and the Senate are working on extending this, but why did it take this long? Why did it take this long? We, we got two weeks until that extra 600 bucks is lost by tens of millions of people. Why did it's not like this surprised us? We knew the deadline. We knew the cases you know were still going up. We flattened them for a while, but we knew all of this. Why hasn't Congress acted sooner? And that's on both Pelosi and McConnell. Yeah, I think I, you know. Look, I th- I think um, we're going. There is going. There, there's going to have to be a second stimulus check. That's. I mean, and that is going to happen. And I think that that you know the the Democrats proposed something and Trump rejected it. Uh, so I think that they they're still trying to hash that out. I hope that it happens soon because if not, there is going to be a disaster, a complete disaster. There are so many people I know who are out of work, looking for work, can't afford to pay rent, can't afford to pay their mortgage. I mean, we, we're facing a sort of, a, you know, we're going to fall off a cliff in, in several weeks' time. So this is this is a, this is really a, a truly a disaster. I think one of the reasons the Democrats have been holding out on this is because of all the, the Republicans keep um, uh, proposing uh, giant tax breaks in a new stimulus, which is obviously one of the worst ways to stimulate an economy, which is to give tax breaks to people who don't need it. Uh, you know, and all they're going to do is save the money. They're going to stick their money in their stock portfolio. Uh, so it might benefit the stock market, but it will do nothing to actually help you know, working people. So I think that is one of the reasons why the Democrats are negotiating and telling the Trump administration that they're not going to sign off on anything that gives away so much money to the already wealthy. Um, you know, so I've got, I do think the Democrats are being responsible here, uh, but it is an emergency and we do need relief like now, as in like next week. Well, to that, I would say to Pelosi, just pass your own bill, pass your own bill and just set the tone and, and just get out there and say, this is a stimulus designed for, or you could do straight up and down, straight up and down, extend the, the 600 bucks. Do that, and you yeah, vote, I, vote on one they, thing at a time. They, they did. Propose, they did propose something, and Trump just called it dead on arrival, and that was it. That was the end of it. They proposed uh, a, a generous package, a really generous package, but uh, the Republicans killed it. You know, they killed it. They they wouldn't even debate it. So, um, you know, uh, it's uh, yeah. It, but it's not good either way. It's really not good. And I think that, um, you know, but like for Trump, this is I don't understand why the, the Trump, the, the Republicans have to negotiate on this because um, their own political careers are at stake here. You know, if they don't pass on the second stimulus bill, the, the only people who are going to suffer for this politically are, are the Republicans, the Trump and the Republicans. It's on their watch. Right. They have the power to pass something. Um, and if they don't do it. You know, it, it hurts them politically. So if, if the economy implodes, this, the only person this affects is Trump, really, or his election chances and, and Senate Republicans' chances. So it, it behooves them to do something about this very, very quickly. So I don't know what the the, the, the foot dragging is here. I, I really can't understand it at all. Yeah, Republicans have this weird obsession, and Democrats do. They have this weird obsession in a time of an economic crisis to address the supply side, right? The suppliers. So we saw this back in uh, 2008 with that financial crisis. So they could have bailed out the public, individual Americans, but they chose to bail out the big banks and the insurance companies and the auto industry. Like there's never, like this, in this time around, for example, okay, Americans, here's a, here's a $1,200 check. 
you know, and yet Steve Mnuchin saying that this, you know, he, he implied that what it would be good for like two or three months rent or something like that, just completely out of touch. But we've seen um, consumer spending did increase last month, I think like 7% or something like that. And, you know, it's amazing what happens when you put money, even in an insignificant amount, like a $1,200 stimulus check or $600 extra a week in unemployment. It's amazing what can happen when you give money to people as opposed to businesses. The people need to spend the money. They need to pay their rent. They need to buy groceries. They need to buy other essential items. And that money goes into the economy. But we have this supply-side obsession where we focus on businesses. And I'm not saying that we should never do that. There are a lot of instances where we should do that. But it seems to, be, seems to me that we are singularly focused, almost singularly focused, on taking care of the, the, co- the so-called job creators as opposed to the people who are actually going to create demand individuals if they have money in their hands. And like you said, you, know, you give money to some of these, these businesses, they're just going to buy back their own stock. That doesn't do anything for the economy. It just jacks up their stock price. Stock market's, doing, stock market's doing all right, though, Mike, so you should be happy about that. <laughs> Are you implied I hold a lot of stock? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I thought you were a big fan of the whole, you know, if the stock market's okay, then then, then everybody's okay. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. As as If you've listened to this program, of course, you know I am a big proponent of that theory. You know, if the Dow and S&P are on the up and up, that means everything else in this economy is fine. Uh, The Dow is at 26-something, I think, at last check. Uh, But, yeah, no, everything everything is just peachy going by the uh, major indexes. So wait, this is why Trump is, you know, again, this is this is why Trump is in so much trouble. It's because in his pea-sized brain, that he genuinely does believe that the, the you know that the stock market, the st- if the stock market is up, he gets reelected, and uh, the facts on the ground have changed here. You know, um, stock market and the jobs market are two different things, and I think that now there is people are genuinely waking up to the fact that the stock market isn't the real economy at all. Well, the problem for Trump there is that Dow Jones is not a registered voter. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so speaking, his registered voters, there's going to be a lot fewer of them in in, in November if he, if 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 this keeps on going. Um, you know, I, I think uh, yeah, he he the Trump administration they need to move very very quickly on this uh, to pump money back into the economy and get regular people spending again because. Um, if he doesn't, he's going to find himself, uh, you know, like, like like Ronald Reagan said, right? You know, are you better off than you were uh, yesterday or last year? And if you're not, then um, you're not going to get reelected. So this this clip is just blowing up my Twitter feed right now as we're talking. And I I don't know what's in it, but I, I really want to play it because my interest is really peaked. Are, are you it's Chris Wallace fact-checking Trump as he's interviewing him. Uh, Would you like to hear this? I'd like to hear this. Okay, let's see what we got here. They wanted to fund the police, and Biden wants to fund the police. Sir, he does not. Look, he signed a charter with Bernie Sanders. It says nothing about defunding the police. Oh, really? It says abolish. It says fund. Let's go. All right. Get me the charter, please. All right. (laughs) So that led to a very interesting exchange where he had his staff go out and get the highlights from that 100-page compact that the Biden team and the Trump team, uh, rather the Biden team and the Sanders team, had signed. And he went through it, uh, and he found a lot of things that he objected to that Biden has agreed to, but he couldn't find any indication, because there isn't any, that Joe Biden has uh, sought to defund and abolish the police. That was pretty good, I think. Yeah, he's been okay, saying, and, uh, in, you know, look, Chris Wallace is kind of enemy number one of Fox News for Donald Trump. And I think it's hilarious to hate each other so much now. Trump, he's on this kick where he keeps saying Biden wants to defund the police. Biden has explicitly said he does not want to do that. Trump's also saying Biden wants to destroy the suburbs. Right. This is something that that Tucker Carlson brought up a few weeks ago, basically saying 
that they want to urbanize the suburbs and destroy the suburbs. And of course, we know what's going on there. That's that's like not even really veiled racism. Like the blacks are coming into the suburbs. They're going to destroy the suburbs. That's what's going on there. And it's just so fucking gross. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, you know, but this is what I think. This is where I think Trump's campaign is going to head, right? Trump's campaign is going to head into descend into just more racism, more xenophobia, more divisiveness, because he doesn't know how to do any other type of politics. You know, he doesn't do the unifying stuff. He doesn't do the hope. He doesn't do the change stuff. He all he does is prey on people's fears. Right. So he's going to double down on that and he's going to lie and distort as much as possible. So, you know, I think that that may have worked in 2016 um, when uh, shit wasn't getting real with uh, the coronavirus pandemic and the economy falling apart. So I think you can kind of afford to do that kind of stuff then. Uh, but not now. I think it's it's uh, it's too re- it's too serious now. Reality. Reality is um, uh, imposing itself on on Trump uh, and, he do- and he clearly doesn't like it. And he's becoming more and more frantic. Uh, as to what to do about this kind of stuff and hence these all these kind of just complete nonsense nonsensical lies about what biden is promising to do and i don't think it's going to win him any new support and obviously you know he's running as the law and order president the problem is he's been president for nearly four years this isn't like nixon in 68 coming in at a time of of racial and political unrest and being the guy that's going to turn things around. This has been going on on Trump's watch. I don't know how he's expecting the public to buy it. And also, and we've talked about this, he wants to make this election about anything other than COVID-19 and his failure to address it. You know, he's running for president like is like 40 years ago. And it's just not, it's not landing because Race relations, they're not on at the forefront of a lot of white people's minds right now. I think definitely the protests in response to George Floyd's murder, that definitely helped. That's that's turned around a lot of the, the poll numbers about what white people think about police brutality against blacks and kind of getting them to understand how much of a problem that is and how much racism exists in this society. I don't think these people in the suburbs, though, that Trump is talking to, I I don't think they're going to be scared into believing that they're going to be overrun by people from the cities all of a sudden because there's a pandemic going on. And and he's not the guy isn't reading the room, you know, and he does. I will give him this. He in 2016, he had a really good political sense. You know, clearly he was able to hit that river card and win the election, but he just has, he's running in a totally different election. It's just, his rhetoric just does not match the time. I think he doesn't want to be there. That's my thought on it, right? I think he just, he, he's had enough. Um, I think he doesn't know what to do. He's completely, you know, he's way, he's completely out of his debts. You know, he doesn't understand what's happening, right? He's incapable of running the country. He's incapable of being president. He genuinely doesn't. I think he wakes up every morning terrified, right? That he, uh, he wants to appear uh, like he's president, like he knows what he's doing, but he doesn't know what he's doing. And deep down, he probably understands this. Like at some basic level, he understands, like, I really don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Right. So he's in a complete sort of panic mode. And I, I think like Scaramucci's right. I think he's kind of self-destructing at the moment, you know, that, that, and I think to a certain extent he was doing that in 2016, you know, the word was that he really didn't expect to win. I mean, the, the whole idea was for him to get himself a TV network, right? That this was just a giant PR stunt. Uh, he was going to pretend to become president, um, you know, shake things up a bit, get, you know, boost his brand and then start some ghastly right wing, um, uh, fascist media company. So I think, you know, now he is almost, now it's got more serious. The stakes are even higher now. And I, you know, I don't know. I don't, does he want to be in power for another four years? Does he really, I mean, given the way things are going and given his popularity, I, 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 I don't see it. He, I mean, what's his plan for 2020? Does he have a platform? He's presented no platform, no healthcare plan, no nothing. There is no infrastructure plan. There's no spending plan. There's no uh, talk about what he wants to do with Medicare or with Medicaid or with, there's nothing. 
right? The, you know, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? It tells you that he, he's not serious. He, does, he doesn't want to, I think he doesn't want to be there anymore. So he's, he's subconsciously doing things to self-sabotage. That's my psychoanalyst uh, um, uh, analysis of what's happening. The platform is winning, Ben. Win. That's it. Yeah, that's yeah, all yeah. it is. So that's much all they care about. That's, that's all they care about. And that's all they have really cared about. Republicans have – they have no interest in governing, right? It's like that old joke about Republicans saying government doesn't work. They want to get in and win and just show how right they are about government not working. And that's the problem. Yep. You know, unfortunately, uh, the American public seems to, they just gluttons for the punishment really, aren't they? That we just keep voting in these people who openly disdain government. And like, why would you elect someone to government who hates government? You know, I mean, not going to make it better. Why don't you vote for someone who wants to make government work and vote, make it better as opposed to gut it, get rid of it and, uh, vilify everybody who works and, you know, ostracizes uh, competent people you know it's it's uh, it's one of america's greatest flaws i think um as a democracy if you can still call it that but um you know, i think uh, i think uh, we, we've covered enough ground for today that's enough um enough for your sunday's entertainment you know, if you've enjoyed the podcast please uh comment below and you can get a 50 percent discount on a bantam membership so you get access to all premium articles uh, you get five articles a week instead of two um, and you get a lot more in-depth reporting so you can click on the 50% discount button below if you're not subscribed to the newsletter you can also do that um, where you can choose to not pay for subscription and get the free version or banter light uh, so please do that and uh, we're going to be back next week with hopefully some better news uh, our aim is to see Mike happy one of these days well, you know what? You want to make me happy? Wear some masks. Yeah, wear just, a bloody mask. Just, I, you know, I saw a bunch of people indoors uh, at the supermarket last week uh, just wearing masks. Uh, not wearing masks. Wear the fucking mask, you know? And, like, look, you are not George Washington, okay? Mask mandates are not the intolerable acts of 1774, okay? You're not the cultural heir to the founding generation. You're freaking out over mask mandates. Just... So show some consideration for your fellow Americans and wear a fucking mask. Big ask, Mike, big ask. But um, anyway, that's enough for today, guys, and we'll see you next week and uh, have a great weekend.